God, we give you thanks that you are near. You are Emmanuel, God with us. You came for us. You came to us to rescue, to redeem, to deliver us. And even though you have come, God, already, we look forward to when you will come again. We eagerly await your return. For the day will come when there are no more tears, no more sadness, no more longing or yearning, no more separation, but only praises, God. We long for the day where we can sing to you forever and ever, where we can sing of your love, where we can speak of your glory, where we can be with you forever. And so, God, we pray today, we pray this week, we pray this coming year might be a year filled with your goodness, filled with your glory, with your love, with your mercy, with your grace, God. That the words of our tongues, God, would be praises, where thanksgiving would be found in our hearts, we will worship you in all things. God, you are worthy. And so God, we thank you for the miracle of Christmas. We thank you that you came. And God, we are excited for how it will be when you come again. God, may our words, may our, our, our thoughts, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight today. May you be honored with all that we say and do in this place and as we go from here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. You guys can have a seat. I hope you all had a Merry Christmas. It was, uh, it was great for me to be able to spend time uh, with family, some quality time, and I hope it was the same for you as well. Uh, this Christmas season, uh, we have been in this new series called Arrival. We've been in the series called Arrival where we have been talking about the advent, the prophesied advent of Jesus, the coming of Christ. And so today, today is our last day, but I know some of you may be thinking, man, I don't know what he's going to do today. Uh, like, it seems like Christmas already happened. Um, you know, baby Jesus was born. We talked about the shepherds, the angels, Mary and Joe. What else is there to talk about? It's true. 
We talked about the events of Bethlehem as we know it, but my guess is is that um, at home, uh, some of you folks in your nativity scene, uh, there are some characters that we have yet to mention. Um, yes, it's not Pluto. <laughs> it is the wise men. The wise men. We three kings from Orient are. Pretty sure that song was written by Yoda. Um, we are, we're talking about the visit of the Magi and the three wise men um, today. And, and we talk about it after Christmas because we recognize that they actually, you know, in reality, they weren't really there. They arrived weeks, uh, maybe months, you know, maybe even over a year later. Um, some have, have said that maybe Jesus was a year and a half, maybe even two years old when the wise men come to town. And so if you are hearing this information for the very first time today, then let me assure you that you can still put up your nativity scene. Uh, it is still good. You don't have to toss it out. Uh, you can put it up with the wise men in it. Um, but if you're one of those people who uh, your nativity has to be as accurate as possible, well, then just put your wise men like on the other side of the room and say that they're making their trek towards the manger. Uh, you could even put them on a shelf and be like, oh, it's wise men on a shelf. Uh, that's, that's two birds with one stone there, friends, right there. Um, the, the wise men are important because they give us one of the first responses to the birth of Jesus Christ. We know that the birth of Jesus was witnessed by Mary and Joseph and probably a few barnyard animals. We know that his birth was heralded by the angels and that the first visitors to come see the newborn king were the shepherds. However, we are told very little else. We aren't told about his first steps we aren't told about his first words. So many of us want to know what happens next. What comes after this? But we're not really given that by the gospel writers. And yet Matthew, he tells us the story about the wise men coming to visit. Even more surprising is that Matthew doesn't actually include the birth of Jesus in his testimony concerning the life of Jesus. He gives us Jesus' genealogy. Uh, he tells us about Joseph being visited by the angel all in Matthew chapter 1. We are told that Joseph and Mary, they didn't finalize their marriage. They didn't consummate their marriage until after Jesus was born. But Matthew doesn't actually tell us any more about the actual birth of Jesus. But he gives us this story. He gives us this. So if you have your Bible with you today, I'm going to ask you to turn with us to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 in the New Testament, you're going to find the gospel of Matthew there. And we're going to start in verse 1. If you have a smartphone, I want to encourage you, feel free to use the YouVersion Bible app. You can find all of the scriptures and notes from today under the events tab. So we're going to Matthew 2 beginning in verse 1. Please follow along as I read the word of God aloud. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Amen. So what do we actually know about these magi, the the wise men as we call it? Well, the Greek word that Matthew uses here is magoi, which is translated as magi or wise men. Now, this term, it covers a wide variety of things from philosophy to uh, astrology. They would would interpret dreams and and magic and, and ancient prophecies, you name it. And I understand that in today's culture, you know, we might look at these guys with real skepticism, man. These guys are really different. Um, but, but no, not in that day and time. These men were seen as astronomers. They were priestly men who studied the stars. And so, of course, they noticed a new star when it appears in the sky. They noticed this new star that appears brighter than the rest. And yet they also know what that star meant. They were from the east, the orient, not not the orient as in China, but the orient as in in the east. More more than likely, they were from Persia. Now, we know that Daniel, along with many Jews, were in exile in Babylon uh, hundreds of years earlier. And so, uh, clearly, these men were familiar with the prophecy about a king who was to come, a ruler who would be born in Bethlehem. These wise men, they were not Jews. They were not Jews. It's highly likely that they were of Arab descent. Imagine that. Arabs coming to worship the king of the Jews. See, Jesus is the king of the world, first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. He's for everybody, right? And so tradition tells us that there's these three men, well, the tradition tells us three men. We're not really sure if it's three or more than that. More than, more than likely, it was, a, it was a whole caravan of people. But uh, they give these three gifts. And so imagine, imagine this, that the kind of faith that it takes to, to load up your family, to load up your wife, your kids, your, your servants, your posse, and begin a track that you don't know how long you're going to be gone where the destination is, how far you must travel to get to that destination, and all you can say when someone asks about doing this is you say, I saw a star. I don't know. I mean, I, I think about my life and my own kids and all the questions. I mean, uh, Claire asks one question after another, you know, but why? Why? You know, and, and, and I can just see it now. I mean, like we load up, right? We load up, and it's like, hey, why are we leaving? Well, because we saw the star. Well, what does that mean? It means the king is here. Really? Well, I mean, I'll be honest. At this point, a little doubt is starting to creep in. I mean, really? 
And of course, you're going to answer confidently because it's your kids. Well, yes, yes, of course, that's what that means. Well, where? Well, I mean, this is where, you know, it kind of starts to get a little away from us. All right? I don't know. I don't know where we're going. Yeah, but, but where are we going, Dad? <laughs> Tell me where we're going. Well, we'll know when we'll get there. Why? I don't know. We just will. There are a few things that I want us to pull out of the story today that uh, we can see in response to Christ. In light of the king being born, in, in light of Jesus coming down to earth, these are, these are th- ways that we should respond. And so the first thing I want us to see today is this, is that we should fully pursue Jesus in all things. We should fully pursue, pursue Jesus in all things. See, Jesus deserves our, our full pursuit. And that's what the wise men did. But what makes it even crazier is that they did it without all the miracles. Without the, uh, they had never heard him teach. Before his death, before his resurrection, they, because of all, I mean, all of that was gone. And they saw a star, they loaded up, and they came. I'm sure it looked crazy. It is crazy. But just about anything with God is crazy. It's countercultural. And so many times it defies logic and reasoning. That's why we call it miraculous. And that's our God's specialty, the miraculous. That night in Bethlehem, everyone is busy pursuing other things. Everybody is very busy that night in Bethlehem. Outside of the shepherds and some others, everyone is too busy to come and see. They were too busy to notice. They were too preoccupied. Those who were the closest to the manger were actually the furthest away, the furthest away spiritually. They were far away. And so that night in Bethlehem, on that same night in Bethlehem, wise men are in the distance. They are far away, and they are traveling, and they are coming. But they are committed. They are pursuing Christ. They are all in. They're willing to travel the distance. They're willing to travel hundreds, maybe thousands of miles. They saw the star. They loaded up. They saw the star in the sky, and they went. Now contrast that with Herod and his wise guys. They weren't even moved to go five miles Five miles. That's the distance from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Five miles. Five miles, and yet it's an eternity. In John 1, the Apostle John, he writes, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So he was here, and outside of a few faithful people, nobody knew it. They didn't know that the Son of God had been born. They didn't know that the Messiah had come. God had come down. The Word became flesh and was dwelling in the barn next door, and they had no idea. The Savior of the world was here, and they missed out on the King. Matthew wants us to read this story, and and he wants us to see how some had the opportunity to experience God 
and yet they were otherwise preoccupied. He's writing as a Jew, specifically to Jews. In, in Matthew's gospel, you're going to find a lot of Jewish history and tradition, hence the genealogy in chapter 1. But, but the point is this. The point is this. Jesus, Matthew wants us, wants us to see here that Jesus isn't a worthy pursuit. Jesus isn't a worthy pursuit. If you talk about your faith in your school or your workplace, if you talk about your faith with your neighbor, uh, your church, whatever it is, a non-Christian, uh, people tend to respond with things like, oh, isn't that nice? Or good for you. As if Jesus is one of many options. Like you could pursue a relationship with God or become an accomplished pianist. That's how the world responds. But see, Jesus isn't a hobby. He isn't an option. He isn't a worthy pursuit. He is the pursuit. He isn't this side project that you, that you, uh, you go with to get right with God. He is the main thing. He is center stage. He's not one of many options. Jesus is the pursuit. He's the only pursuit worth pursuing. He's the pursuit of all pursuits. And so if you're a Christian and you would say that Jesus is your Savior, that Jesus is your Lord, then Jesus, I want to, I want to remind us today that Jesus deserves our full pursuit. Jesus deserves our full pursuit. God didn't come down and be born in a manger for us to dabble in Jesus, to dabble, to come and, and sit in church once a week and, and go and, and be fine. We don't half pursue God. We fully pursue him with all that we got. That's what this story is telling us. And so the next thing I want us to see is that once we pursue him, once we pursue the king, then we submit to Jesus as king. We submit to Jesus as king. So the wise men, they roll into Jerusalem. I mean, surely that is where the king of the Jews will be born, right? Jerusalem, that's where the nearest palace is. Surely you would find a king occupying a palace. And yet they find the palace occupied by another king. A bad king. A terrible king. Nobody likes Herod. I mean, nobody. I mean, Herod was power hungry. He exploited everyone for selfish gain. I mean, think about this. Caesar demanded, Caesar demanded 50%, okay, 50%, uh, half, half, uh, so, sorry, my bad. Okay, Caesar demanded a tax of 12.5% of everything, okay, 12.5%. Herod demands half, okay? So that is 62 0.5% for those of you who are mathematicians here, right? You, we understand why tax collectors are then hated because on top of that, then the tax collectors are going to take their cut. People like Zacchaeus, people like Matthew. And so it was like the common man is paying 75% in taxes, 12 and a half is going to Rome, and 50% is going to King Herod. If Herod... Another thing is, if Herod perceived you to be a threat, if Herod perceived you to be a threat, he would just have you killed, which is what he did to much of his own family, his wife, his sons, even the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, he once said, it would be better to be Herod's sow than one of his sons. 
Now I tell you this because the wise men show up. The wise men show up and they walk into the palace and they say, where is the king of the Jews? Where is the king of the Jews? Where is the one who has been born? We saw his star and we have come to worship him. Now how do you think Herod is going to respond. Awkward. How dare they come into my palace and ask me that? I'm the king of the Jews. I'm the king. You're talking to him. Verse 3 says, when Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. I mean, I just imagine, you know, everybody is disturbed with him. You know, everybody knows how badly this is going to end. They just know where this is going. But see, Herod, he's just as crazy as he's controlling. Herod used to dress up as a commoner just to hear what the people were saying about him. And so he calls his peeps together. He calls the chief priests, the uh, teachers of the law, and he's like, tell me what these guys are talking about. I need to know where is this king to be born. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they are definitely familiar with the prophecy found in Micah. And so they say, in Bethlehem in Judea. Because the prophet wrote, in Bethlehem, uh, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And verses 7 and 8 then tell us that Herod has a secret meeting with the wise men. He tells them to go to Bethlehem. Go. You go check it out. Search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, you report to me. You report right back to me so that I too may go and worship him. You and I both know that's a lie. You and I both know that's a lie. Herod doesn't want to worship the child. In fact, other scholars, other preachers and teachers have pointed to the fact that, that in this scene with Herod and the teachers of the law and the wise men, there are really three responses to Christ the King. Truly, you have three responses to the birth of Jesus Christ. The first is this, hostility. The first is hostility. We see this exemplified in King Herod. He's like, no way am I going to bow down to any other. I will not submit to this so-called king. There's contention as to who the king is. Now, maybe we're not as evil as Herod. Maybe we're not even close to doing the deeds that he did. However, I think for some of us there is still contention as to who the king is. Who is the king? There's contention with some as to who is really calling the shots. Who is in control of my life? I mean, sure, we will always have people who will say, man, you need to keep Jesus to yourself. It only causes issues, right? These same people, they might get all philosophical or historical, and they'll, they'll talk about, man, all the, the, the deeds done wrong, all of the crimes against humanity in the name of religion, or maybe they'll just say that it's better off to keep the peace. I don't know, maybe you had a family Christmas this, this past Christmas where you're like, you know, hey, I can't talk about certain things. You know, maybe somebody said, don't get too Jesus-y around Christmas and all. I mean, it might make for an awkward time or cause family uh, friction, division. But see, the thing is, is that there are three responses. And in this first one, 
This first one, there's this contention. And I tend to agree with uh, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon in that he says, the great argument against the Bible and ultimately our submission to Christ the King is the ungodly life. I don't want my life to change. I don't want to stop sinning. I don't want to change my behaviors, so I will not submit to another master. So I will not submit. And so the, the first response is hostility. The second one is indifference. The second one's indifference. We see this in the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They know the scriptures. They know all about the prophecy and the coming of the Messiah. They tell Herod, they're like, oh, yeah, it's going to happen in Bethlehem. And then they sat back and they did nothing. Why didn't they go to Bethlehem and see for themselves? They weren't moved to action. In fact, I think they just didn't care. I mean, they could have easily said, wow, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. You said there's a star, there's a star. You sure there's a star? There's a star. Let's go see. Hey, we'll go with you. You know, why, why don't we go see? For no, nope, none of that happened. They know all about it, and they choose to do nothing about it. These guys, they know all the right answers, and yet they missed it. And, and I think this one is a little frightening. This one's a little frightening for some because it shows us this possibility that it's possible to be religious and yet be spiritually blind. That it's possible to go to church and yet be unchanged by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's possible to read your Bible and know your Bible and yet not be transformed by it. Jesus tells the, the Jewish leaders in chapter 5 of John, he says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. There are people who know who Jesus is, but they don't know him. They know facts, they know stories, they know dates and verses, and yet they have never submitted their will to that of God. And they try and do all the right things. But when a real movement of the Spirit comes along, they remain unmoved. They're spiritually blind to it, and they're indifferent to the cause of Christ. And so there's hostility, and there's indifference, and the third thing is their surrender. Their surrender. Full submission to the power and authority of the will of God. What does that look like in our lives? Well, it looks like worship. It looks like worship. The last thing I want us to see today is that Jesus deserves our wholehearted worship our wholehearted worship. We are to worship Jesus wholeheartedly. Let's pick up in verse 9. It says, After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. Seeing the star, they were overjoyed. It led them to worship. Seeing Christ, they bowed down. It led them to worship. In an act of worship, they present the king with gifts. 
Here's some gold. Here's some frankincense. Here's some myrrh. Matthew says that they opened their treasures and presented them to the infant king. They opened their treasures and presented them with them. Each one is a treasure in its own right. Gold, the choicest of metals for the king of kings. Frankincense, the incense of the temple given to the great high priest. And myrrh, the perfume that would anoint the living and embalm the dead. This same perfume is offered to Jesus. The the same perfume that is offered on this day will be offered as he is hanging on the cross. That same perfume mixed with wine is given to him on the cross. The wise men, they worshiped Jesus and presented him with these precious gifts. These precious gifts. These were indeed treasures and they were costly. But here's the catch. It isn't about the gift. It isn't about the gift. Sure, these gifts would be a blessing to their family as they escape to Egypt, as they go on the run. These gifts Mary and Joseph would use on Jesus' behalf and for his benefit. And sure, Jesus deserves any and every gift we could ever bring. Jesus deserves it all. He deserves our greatest treasures. But it isn't about the gift at all. It's about the heart of the giver and the manner in which the gift is given. These wise men, they traveled an incredibly long distance. They traveled the distance to personally give their treasures. It was personal to them. Here is my gift. I present it to you, the king. They wanted to worship the Christ child in person, to behold the newborn king, and to offer up what they treasured. They made the decision that it was better for their treasures to be in the possession of a baby than in their own hands. It's better to be in the hands of Jesus than in their own hands. And so their gifts are given. Their gifts are given. And that is their worship. Their gifts are their worship as they seek to bring glory, as they seek to bring honor to the Son of God and not store up treasures on earth, they give it. These men, they come and they bow down. And they had faith. They bowed down in faith before this baby. They believed. And it was counted to them as righteousness. In faith, they traveled that distance. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that they were moved to worship in that moment when they walk in the door and they see a completely unremarkable child. Jesus looks just like any other kid sitting with his mom. He hadn't, he didn't do anything exceptional in that moment. No miracles were performed. No teaching. Couldn't even speak in complete sentences. But in faith, they bowed down before the king. In faith, they made a choice to worship. They made a choice to worship. They pursued the king. They bowed down in submission and they worshiped him. 
It wasn't about their gifts. It was about their faith and the sacrifices that they made in response to that faith. Paul writes in Romans 12, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. See, in response to this awesome reality that Christ has come, in response to this awesome reality that Christ will return, we must wholeheartedly worship. There is no other response, no other response that is appropriate in that moment. For Jesus came to save us from our sins. As John the Baptist cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This means that Christ came to fix our worship. That we might rightly focus. That we might rightly direct our worship on the one who is deserving of it. The Son of God came that we might be restored. That life might be restored. That all things might be made right. And our Messiah came to make a way that we might be free to worship our Creator. Where relationship was broken, He came. Where sin had entered the world, He came. Where darkness had come upon the earth, the light of the world came. Where pain and suffering had run rampant, our healer came. Where grief and sorrow ruled, our wonderful counselor came. Where trials and tribulations reigned, the Prince of Peace came. He is our mighty God, our everlasting Father. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. And how can we not worship? How can we not? Joy to the world. The Lord has come. God, we thank you for the gift of you. We praise you that you are fully God and fully human and that you came, you humbled yourself to be born as a man, to live to show us the way, the truth, and the life. But not just that, God, to die on a cross for our sins, to make a way. To be resurrected, that we might have life also. So God, I know that sometimes it's hard for us to perceive ourselves as loved, but you came. It's hard for us to perceive ourselves as more than conquerors, but you are with us. It's hard for us to see ourselves as sons and daughters. 
you accept us. You adopt us. And we are yours. And so God, today, we, we say that in this moment, God, in this moment, today, in this week, and, and this next month, God, that we will pursue you with everything we got. That we will submit our plans to yours, your will over ours, that your will may be done. And we worship you as our king, for you are worthy. You are worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Your love endures forever and ever and ever. Amen. Right now we're going to enter into a time of response. The altar is open for prayer as Josh and Joey lead us in the song. I'd like to invite you to stand, sing with us. Respond however the Lord leads you to. If you want somebody to talk to, I'll be down front. Let's all respond to God all around this place. Turn.